Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to another episode of Big Fight Weekly. This is episode 61 with myself, Chris Hume, the legend Don Maguire. And again, we keep hitting you hard with these legends coming on the show. We had Matt Hughes yesterday. Today we have a trailblazer, another icon, a pioneer of not just mixed martial arts, but on the other side of the pro wrestling business. If you ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the one and only, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the introduction. Oh, brother. You know, hey, I'm going to jump in here first, Chris. You know, Ken, I want to take you back just a little bit. You know, you were on my show not too long ago, and you played a prevalent role in my life. But I want to take you back to 1994, the Grady Cole Center, Charlotte, North Carolina. What did that moment truly mean? Because it was really the first stone in the path of Ken Shamrock, you know, getting world recognition, getting the spotlight put on him. You, of course, you went on to create even greater moments in your life. But what was that moment like at the Grady Cole Center in UFC 3? Uh, yeah, um, it wasn't UFC 3. Um, UFC 3, yeah, because I remember the first UFC, uh, you know, I ended up losing. I had to miss the next one. Um and again, when you guys talk about the, the history and things like that, it's like I, it's like it was another person doing it because I don't even remember. Like, it's hard for me to remember dates, times, events. You know, I remember very specifically matches and things that I had, but I couldn't tell you when they happened. And I think a lot of that has to do was because of my success. Uh, I've been successful for almost twenty years. 
uh, fought longer than any, probably any individual. Uh, and not just fought, but fought in main events and semi-main events my whole career, all the way up until I was 52 years old uh, and headlined events. So it, it's been a long journey. And so when you ask me questions, you probably need to be more and more specific about the opponent. Um, and also, because once you name the opponent, I could tell you exactly what happened. But that's a long journey that I traveled and a lot of success, a lot of main events. Um, and obviously, the second part of my career wasn't as good as the uh, first part of my career. But I still, the enjoyment of being able to train, be able to get in the ring and compete, um, it felt like my life was fully lived. And so I know a lot of people say you fought too long, you fought too long, and probably so when it comes to my ability. But from my heart, I felt like I fought as much as I needed to in order to be happy. Most definitely. And I, and I apologize for that. You know, I'll, I'll be 60 years old this month. So my, <laughs> my, brain, my brain's a little scrambled. You know, we call it Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. But, you know, the thing of it is, Ken, you know, when I had you on my show last, I, I love the thought perception that you created when you called adversity just a word. And, you know, I looked at my life because I always used to, you know, said I'm adversity created. But then that day I had you on my episode and you really made me look back at myself. You really helped me define my walk because I always said I was adversity created and I'm not adversity created because like you said, adversity is just a freaking word. You know, it's really passion, pride and patience and perseverance that really keeps us going. You know, you are tremendous, but I kind of want to take you back one brief moment because I had Dan Servant on my show and he really doesn't like to talk about the Heart Foundation, the dungeon. You know, what correlated you with the world of wrestling before you even began a career in the UFC or any other promotion? Well, first, I'd like to go back to your early comments about passion and desire. I think also, too, the biggest one in order to have any of those, you got to have purpose. Um, once you have purpose, all that other stuff will flow into being successful when you find that purpose. So I agree with you on that. Um, you know, I'm not sure why Dan doesn't want to talk about the Dungeon or the Heart Foundation. Um, I know that there was great memories. We had an awesome time. Uh, obviously, you know, losing Owen was a big deal uh, to the wrestling world, one of the good ones. Um, and so he's truly missed. Um, but, yeah, to go back to your question about my, my uh, desire – Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one, with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Uh, I believe what you're asking is, is what brought me into wrestling, what made me want to do wrestling. And I think a lot of it had to do with early on in my, before I ever became a fighter, uh, I went down to Mooresville, North Carolina, and I started training with Nelson Royal. And I went through some tryouts. And I remember those tryouts having to, do all these push-ups and run and it's brutal and then go in there and uh, have to shoot with some, um, you know, amateur wrestler on a real shoot after you were completely dog tired. 
and then being able to, you know, get in front of a crowd. I think once you feel that uh, as an entertainer, and if that's in your blood to want to do that, no matter what it is in front of a crowd, once you feel that, it's a drug. Uh, and it, it keeps you wanting more. And I think that that's what happened to me was when I got in front of crowds, uh, especially uh, when I was in Morrison, North Carolina, I got in front of probably two or 300 people. Um, it was big because they were focused on me. Uh, even prior to that, when I played high school football or I wrestled and I was, and I, I, I always was in the main event because I was always winning tournaments. So I was always the focus. And to me, that's what drove me to be great was because I wanted, I wanted that, that vision. I wanted people watching me. I wanted people to know who I was. Uh, that was in my DNA. And I wanted to entertain people. I wanted to like what I was doing. That was also in my DNA. So, you know, starting out from a young, young kid fighting in front of my house with three people watching, uh, you know, I was, it was the focus and I didn't want to let anybody down or myself. I didn't want to lose. And so even in wrestling, um, in high school, then went into pro, did it with Nelson and started getting in front of, you know, three, 400 people. Um, my desire to want to win, want to compete, want to be great was even enhanced. Um, I got in front of my, uh, probably the, the, the biggest crowd, especially just starting out. Uh, I went to Japan on a pro wrestling thing with Baba's group. And uh, there was 17,000 people as I was wrestling there. And uh, I remember getting in front of that and I wasn't main event, but I was in, in a tag team with the Can-Am connection, Doug Furness and Danny Crawford. <clears throat> and uh, we were wrestling and I remember the crowd and, it, it fueled me even more. And then I had another opportunity later on uh, where I fought for Pancras. My very first fight was in front of a crowd double that. And they started chanting my name. And this was a fight, right? In, 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 in a big crowd, my first time ever getting into a ring where it was a shoot. And I remember fighting. And after it was over, I remember Sammy comes over, who was a referee, came over and said, hey, they're chanting your name. The whole crowd was saying something. And I, I didn't know they listed me uh, under as Wayne Shamrock, not Ken Shamrock. So when they were cool. saying Wayne Shamrock, I didn't recognize it till Sammy came over and said, hey, they're chanting your name. I just won the match. I thought they were saying something else because it was in Japan. And he said, no, it's your name. And I remember stopping and listening. And I remember like, dude, this is great. And uh, I also did another show with almost over 100,000 people in Tokyo Dome. Uh, where I fought a kickboxer and um, that was another rush. So for me, I think there was a buildup from the beginning, even from my younger days in high school and then on into the professional ranks of feeling that, that drug uh, of, of adrenaline of crowds popping and screaming and yelling, whether they're with you or against you, it drove me. It made me feel excited and happy to be doing what I was doing. Sorry about that. It's <laughs> <laughs> all good. Crashing my phone. I'm excited. <laughs> Just thinking about it, I get pumped. Yes. Well, that's one of the reasons we we brought you on in the UK today. You know, uh, we're we're broadcasting live all across Europe right now and, and the United States. But we found out that the United Kingdom really loves Ken Shamrock. The minute that 
you know, we got the okay to go ahead and post. I mean, the UK just kind of went crazy. You know, everybody, and you know how the sport is, everybody and their brother come fight night wants a ticket. Well, when everybody found out you were coming on the show, it was like, can we get on the show? Can we get on the show? It's like, no, man. You know, it's Ken's time to shine. But we wanted to share you with the UK because you're very prevalent over there to this day. The United Kingdom still praises Ken Shamrock. And that's got to be a testimony, not only to you, but to what you, you did in this sport, man. The world still loves the world's most dangerous man. With that being said, I'm going to pop it off to my little buddy in Wales, Mr. Chris Hume. Thank you, Don. Uh Ken, I want to go to uh, the point where you said about pancreas, and I want to sort of slightly move you a bit forward in time. Uh, I want you to sort of talk to me about the creation of the lion's den. And I was watching stuff back today, just sort of get more knowledge on it. And it was like amazing to see that the group of people you established in the vicinity of mixed martial arts and how they progressed under your tutelage but the, how you were training them and, you know, you were making them, you know, solid as a rock before they went in and fought. Can you just take me back how the lines then came about and what's your feelings looking back now at it? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was a, I remember it was out of necessity. Um, I was going over to Japan and I was, uh, I was obviously had my first uh, match over there and I won and I told you the feeling I got from the crowd chanting my name. And I just, all of a sudden I was like, this is what I want to do. And so they were going to bring me back. Um, you know, I remember, I believe it was Finaki. I did my second match with, and same thing. We went 40 minutes. We did a 45 minute match, which is unheard of. And, uh, and even though I lost that match, it seemed like I gained a ton of respect from everyone. Mm -hmm. But then soon after that, the, the company closed. Uh, and then of course they came up with Fujiwara Gumi, but while all this was happening, right. I was thinking to myself, okay, this is what I want to do. And now I got to train for it. And so I remember going out and, and it didn't dawn on me that there was no place to train for this. <laughs> Because it was striking open hand. There was kicks, knees, um, takedowns, and wrestling, submission holds, all these things. And I never dawned on me that when I went to go train, there was only two ways to train. Either one was going to wrestle, judo, any of the stuff they did with geese, or just regular folk-style wrestling, which had no submission. Or you were going to kickbox or box. But they didn't mix. And it didn't dawn on me till I started to go train for this. And I realized there's nowhere to train. Like I remember trying to get guys come in there and go, listen, I want you to punch and kick at me. I'm going to take you down. And they look at me and go, I don't do that. And I go, no, 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 I know that. But I just want you to throw at me and I'm just going to try to make you miss. I'm going to take you down. And they're like, no, man, it'll hurt my knee. Or, or I don't want to go on the ground. You know, I get hurt. And I'm like, okay. So then I tried to do the same with wrestling, bring guys in, shoot on me. I'm going to punch at you. They're like, it ain't hitting me. <laughs> so it, it became a problem to be able to find a place to prepare myself to go over to Japan and fight. And uh, I remember at times I stay over there to train because I didn't have anywhere here to really be able to test myself or to get good training because it was either one, I stayed on the mat the whole time and rolled with guys who didn't know submissions, or I went in and just did kickboxing and boxing and we never clinched or went down. 
So um, it just after a while, I think it was six months or so after they, you know, the company went down, fought with Fujiwara. I felt like I'm going to build my own team. And so that's when I was sitting upstairs in my house watching this channel. And I was kind of just reminiscing on what, what I wanted to kind of name my, my team, you know, the gym uh, as I was building it. And uh, I remember watching the, the animal uh, planet and they had lions on there. And it was funny because they were showing the lions how they would circle and they would push the prey uh, into the group of, of lions. And then when they attacked them, the lion would literally claw and then pull him down into his body and bite his neck. And when I watched it, I was like, dude, that, that looks so much like grappling, like literally like how they're pulling down and rolling on the ground. And I was like, and then at the end of the show, they said, king of the jungle, lion. And I was like, that's it, lion, lion. And then, as, of course, as you're doing some research and thinking about it, I end up coming up with lion's den because the den is the home where they stay. And for us, it's where we train, where we eat, where we train together, where we learn. And so I thought to myself, lion's den. And so when I came up with that name, was right around the same time I opened the gym, I started bringing fighters in. Uh, Vernon was my first one. Scott Bazak was another one of my first ones. A lot of new guys that I brought in. And really, these guys were more rebels, guys that were from the street, didn't have a future. Jerry Bolander, Pete Williams, Frank Shamrock, my brother. Uh, all of these guys were guys that were dead in roads. There was, they had no future. They were just living. And it felt like it was a perfect fit because I was kind of the same way. Like I was in group homes. I, you know, I mean, just there was no, there was no direction. And so with these guys, when I brought them in, we did these tryouts. And I, at first, I was the one that did the tryouts. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And my tryouts were brutal because the one thing I wanted that I learned from the animal planet was that in order to be the king of the jungle, you got to be able to face, I mean, adversity. You got to be able to be strong. Uh, even when you're weak uh, and you know that you can't win, you keep fighting. And that's what I learned from that animal planet was like animals don't think they fight. They could be as big as your hand and go against somebody that's double that size and go at you like they believe they can win. Uh, and I felt like that's kind of what our mentality I wanted was guys that would never give up. And so these tryouts were built more like Japan where the way I was tried out, where I was pushed past my limits. Uh, even knowing that there's no way that I had the ability to beat the guy because I was so wore out by doing these tryouts that I didn't have a chance to be able to beat these guys who were so much better than I was anyways. And they just beat the hell out of me. Um, and it wasn't because they enjoyed it. It was because they needed to know who I was, the person I was. So I took that same concept and I brought it to the lion's den. And I, at first, would try these guys out and I would beat them up. I mean, I beat them up bad. If you would see videos of this, people would hate me. They would think I was a bully. And I was. But there was a purpose behind that bullying. It wasn't to break them. 
uh, mentally or physically in a way to where I couldn't build them back up. It was a way of breaking them mentally and physically so that I could find out where their, their breaking point was and every single day push them past that breaking point so that each time their breaking point becomes farther and farther and farther away. They start realizing there is no breaking point. It's, it's all mental. Like you can go as far as you want to go. There is no breaking point. Um, when it comes to conditioning, when it comes to uh, fighting, you could keep going no matter what, unless you're asleep. And so those tryouts were built that way. So I tried a lot of guys out um, and beat them up. And But afterwards, when they started training, I knew where they were at. I knew what I had to do with them. And I put them in a position to, to improve themselves. There's a lot of building after that. And so uh, that's how really uh, the team came together. The den came together was out of necessity because I needed guys to train with me. But as soon as I started getting these guys to start training, I realized, you know, there was seven or eight of us um, that I could literally bring these guys over to Japan because, you know, obviously I was training with them. They were learning as I was training and as I was getting prepared, I was teaching um, because I needed them to also learn so that they could challenge me. And so I got to a point to where I could get these guys to challenge me and be able to push me and, and make me better. Uh, and that took probably a year, a year and a half uh, to get these guys. And I felt like a lot of these guys that I brought in were, like I said, dead end and, and didn't really have anywhere to go. So I, 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 I rented a house. Obviously, I had a gym and I set up coaches, everything. I, so I, I got a house. Guys would pass the tryouts. They stayed there for a year, six months to a year, and then they would have their first fight, uh, depending on how much they improved. And that's why when you look at the Lions Den and when the guys fought their first time, every single one of them won their first fight because I would not let guys get in that ring and fight before they were ready. Yeah. Let me jump in here real quick, Chris, because what you did with the Lions Den was truly phenomenal. And a lot of people don't realize this because you created the Lions Den and Pat Militich ultimately created Militich Fighting Systems. But you were one of the first. And what you did was you correlated and created some of the best fighters in the sport and others followed, you know, like Militich and then Matt Hughes broke off Militich and went with Robbie Lawler and created their own. But you were the first. So really, if you look back at it, you were the true creation of creating warriors to go on and, and basically cement this, this sport as we know it today. You know, when you look back at, you know, that way that, you know, that situation in that way, Ken, you're a true pioneer. You truly invoked this sport and created this sport and brought it to the level at that time that it needed to be. So you're the trend center in the beginning of the, of all of this, you know, what is it? I mean, I know how much the line 10 means to you, but now that you look back, what does it know? You, you know, you didn't know it at the time, but what does it mean to you now knowing that you were the first that created the true warriors of the sport that we love today? Yeah, it's awesome. Um, you know, even take one step further, you know, my, I was the first one uh, to really um, actually lock in a submission hold and tap somebody out uh, on the main card, you know, uh, on TV uh, to the world. Um, and to me, that was special because I was a submission artist. Um, I was a guy that came in and really that's what I lived by, even though I had heavy hands and I was a puncher on the street. 
uh, when it came to the sport, I realized that, you know, the submission was the way to go, being able to control your opponent, get him to the ground and do that. But also too, you know, um, when you look at it, the, there was a lot of things that um, I've got my fingerprint on and, and I'm proud of that. And unfortunately, because um, the, the guards had changed with the UFC from the um, Meyerwitzes and SEG to the Fertitas, um, a lot of the old school stuff is just lost because, um, you know, it's their business and, you know, they want to make sure that their stamp uh, stays in front of, of Bob Meyerowitz and the Gracies who brought this here. So you don't see a whole lot of advertisement on that, which is smart uh, because they want to be the ones to be leading this, even though somebody else did it. But even when you look at it, you look at it with the, you know, the, the striking um, when you look at the punch combinations and then takedowns, um, I did that first setups of uh, uh, punching with the, a grappler, you know, throw a right hand, left hook, shoot, a kick, right hand, shoot. So all those combinations I, I developed. I mean, even though people are doing a much better than that, but, but I was the one that set that up because you couldn't just shoot in on a guy like Gracie or guys that were, um, very skilled with the gi. You couldn't just shoot right in like a wrestler. You had to set it up with something. And so I developed that, being able to set that up. I used to even develop the, uh, the fake shot with the right hand on Gracie when I caught him in the face. Nobody's ever been able to hit Gracie, right? I mean, like he's been doing it a long time. Nobody's been able to knock him out. And uh, so I was able to set him up off a, off a shot, you know, a fake shot and a punch. And I caught him in the head. And, and blew up his eye. So a lot of the stuff that you see now was stuff that I had developed way back then, and they're just doing it so much more perfection now. Even The Ultimate Fighter, as much as that show has taken off and been popular, um, there's, there's absolutely nobody that ever talks about the lion's den, which is the concept of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and it, all of a sudden, I just came out of thin air, like, oh, yeah, Dana White just created this thing, and it was his genius idea. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, don't forget about the Lions, Dan. They were never there. <laughs> so, uh, But it, it really is. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff that the guys, not just myself, but the team, the Lions Den team, that we help build what we see today in MMA, all those guys that were with me in the Lions Den, we we truly did help build this sport. I, I truly believe that. You go ahead, little Chris. Little Chris, here you are, mate. I'm bigger <laughs> than you. Uh, um, I, I it's fascinated listening to this because you know what I mean the way the way you're describing it. I'm sort of envisioning it in my head, you know what I mean? And it's sort of painting pictures in my head as you're going through the history. I want to total touch on Ultimate Fighter because obviously for all, all the different reasons, and I, I've had people who've been on Ultimate Fighter before they come on my show and, and they explain that, you know, things get twisted and, you know, they only show you parts that, you know, people who are watching it on the telly want to see. Now, I, I'm going to take you back to, is it Series 3? You were, you, you were on with your old buddy Tito. And obviously, we had a prevalent um, two British people in the first ever Ultimate Fighter in uh, Ross Pearson and Michael Bisping. Now, what was that experience for you? Because I can only tell you what I see from what the telly's telling me. But I'm, I'm taking it all the, the sort of the shade that was thrown at you on the Ultimate Fighter was a lot of BS just by the cameraman, I take it, yeah? Yeah. I, I, and, I, and, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not, I wasn't a fan of yeah. the Ultimate Fighter. 
because I don't believe it gives people the proper training. And this isn't an entertainment show. This is fighting. This is live fighting. You're talking about people's careers. And so not to be able to have enough time to get in a ring and train for this kind of fighting was absolutely insane to me. <clears throat> I mean, the guys would find out they were going to fight that week and you'd had three days to train. I'm like, <clears throat> wow. Uh, but it was what it was, you know. But for me, the way I train people is a lot longer than that. Like I just told you, man, most guys wouldn't yeah. get in the ring six months, at least six months of training. And most of them, it was a year. Uh, did I lose you? No, you're still there. Yeah, you're still there. Yeah, I think, yeah, we go. <clears throat> so you're talking about six months or a year training to get in a ring and fight. So it, when I got put on the show, I was like, yeah, I mean, it's entertainment, I guess. You know, we'll do it. We'll see how it works. But I, I couldn't grasp the concept of being able to try to train a guy three days. Even if we had the whole show, you didn't know who was going to fight. So you had all these guys working and training, but no one knew who they were going to fight that week, right? So a lot of guys were like, yeah, well, we don't need to train hard because we don't know when we're going to fight. And I said, dude, we all have to train hard. And it got to a point because they didn't trust me. They didn't know me. There's a trust that's built up between coach and fighter uh, that they have to trust that you're putting them in the best position to win. So my kind of training is very hard. Very, very, very taxing on your body. And guys that don't know me or don't trust me would think I'm overtraining them. And that's what was happening on that Ultimate Fighter is I wanted everybody just to really work hard and go hard because that's how I did it. Mm -hmm. And they were like, man, we don't spar the week before the fight. And they were arguing with me. And I'm like, brother, this isn't a normal situation. Finally, I got to a point to where I just said, if you want to train, you train. If you don't, that's fine with me. It's your careers. Uh, and that's what I got to, because for me, in my mind, here I was there on the show, willing to work with these guys, and yet I'm not getting a maximum effort when it's time to train because they don't know if they're going to fight that week. And not all of them. There was a lot of good guys. I don't want to single anybody out, but there was probably half of them that were really, really, I really enjoyed them. Um, but then there was some of them that just, just felt like, trying to spar and fight the week of the fight wasn't smart, which is true, but we're not in a normal situation. And so I was just going, listen, let's just go. We're going to spar. We're going to grapple. We're going to go hard. And then when someone gets picked, we know at least we're ready, right? Maybe overtrained. I don't know, but this is not a normal situation. I'm not used to training guys like this. It's not something that I would do. But this is where we are, and this is how we're going to do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. And so that's kind of where it was. I did not have a very good process um, with that setup. Um, it just wasn't something I was comfortable with because I believe that most people who have worked with me when they first start, we don't like me. But once you get with me and you know me and we spend time together, then you know why I do what I do. But it, it's a trust that has to be built up. And I'm not going to come in and hug you and shake your hand and be nice to you because I got a job to do. And that doesn't normally sit well with people. And it didn't sit well with a lot of those guys when I was on the show. Yeah. You know, the thing about the thing about it is with me that I love about you, because I I went in depth with you on our last interview. And the thing about it is, you know, I, I think the sport really, truly saved Ken Shamrock, you know, because you were out there 
beating ass per se in the street. I mean, you didn't take no crap off of nobody. And, and I, I love that about you because I'm the same way, even though I'm almost, I'll be 60 on the 23rd of this month. I, you know, I went through a drive through the other day and, and the guy got smart with me and I said, bro, don't think I won't yank your ass out through that window. <laughs> and, and, you know, and they think that because we get a little bit older that, that we don't still have that same influence. You know, you weren't garnered the world's most dangerous man, you know, just out of, out of thin air. You earned that right. What was it like for, for Ken Shamrock to take that aggression from the streets and finally be able to, to utilize it in the right way in a cage, in a ring, or whatever aspect it was? How did it feel to you to be able to do it right without worrying about social recourse? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, especially when I first started out um, in the Pancras organization, uh, it felt like, even though I'd done the wrestling and football and all the stuff that built me up to this point where I got into the Pancras organization and I was legitimately shooting on guys, um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply it felt like I had just reached, I had just reached who I was supposed to be. Like I had just found out this is what I was going to do for my life. Uh, and to have that feeling when you, when you go in and you fight and you start doing that and to have that comfortable feeling about this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's, it's a feeling that I, that I, I hope that most people get to feel uh, with whatever they're doing, right? Uh, something you love and enjoy doing and you're able to make money at it. And that's what it was for me because my whole life I was getting in trouble for it. Uh, but I always had intensity, whether I was on the basketball court, <clears throat> whether I was playing ping pong or pool, it was winning, right? And it didn't matter. I had to win. And if I didn't win, then I would go back and practice and try to be better at it if I was going to want to keep doing it. Um, and that was my mentality. And so when I stepped in and fought in Pancras and I, I ended up doing well and I started actually got a contract, I knew in my heart, like, this is who I am. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And to take it one step farther, there was nothing in the world like this. This was mixed, true mixed martial arts to the fullest and so to be able to capture that and be the best at it in a country that I didn't belong in Japan, that they created, they had their own superstars, for me to rise above that and be above the people that had brought this to the fans, the country, and for me to be that champion in the face of that organization was not easy because it was, think about it, you're Japan, they have their own superstars, it's their organization, I'm probably the only foreigner or gaijin, as they would say, that had the ability to fight in this. There was a lot of other guys that came in, but didn't even boss, that didn't have the ability that I had to be able to reach that level. 
uh, being able to beat these guys in a tournament, a 16-man tournament, a two-day tournament, in which was already known that somebody else was going to win. Mr. Fanaki was the favored to win that. I beat him in the second round. And then I beat the other guy that came in from shootboxing who wasn't supposed to be there. I thought Suzuki was supposed to be in the finals with Fanaki. Suzuki got beat. And then it was just me and this other dude. And for me to be able to win that in a country that I didn't belong, I was just there as a guest and they were training me and me as a fighter. I only had uh, uh, six, eight months of training for me to do what I did was absolutely. And no one talks or even, even dives into this to find out the odds of me being able to do this. And then in two and a half years after joining UFC, after capturing the Pankers title, doing things that my skill sets weren't supposed to be doing, then jumping into the UFC in another organization that was created by the Gracies for the Gracies marketing for their schools with their own guy. And to me to go in there, not thinking it's going to be real and go in and get beat by this guy, which I didn't see coming. To come back and have another rematch to be able to even that odds out with a guy that had 22 years of experience with 50 years of experience behind him with his family. For me to go in there with all the rules going against me because they put rules in there. I'm not going to get into that, but they did a lot of things to make the rules a little favorable to him. Me go in there and be able to beat the snot out of him even after they put a time limit in there because if they didn't put a time limit in there, they'd put him in the morgue. And for me to for me to beat the snot out of him and walk out of there and they carried him out. These are things I think that if somebody truly would do their research and understand the odds that I had to overcome to achieve these goals were just astronomical. Well, the thing that you you know, the prevalence that you just brought up, it still exists to this day. I mean, it, it truly does. You look at the sport over there to this day they still have it rigged to where they want their own people to win. You know, one thing I'll never understand about overseas, though, is why is there a Bob Sapp day when Bob Sapp really didn't create any greatness in the sport, and he's a legend overseas, and it just kind of – I just sit no, back and laugh. It, because when you, It's Asia, Don. It's Asia, Don. It's not overseas. It's not in England. You don't get a Bob Sapp day in the U.K., <laughs> believe me. It's, like, it's all the way in Asia, that pal. <laughs> Yeah, but it just it it just is. It's you're right, man. You you went over there and you did things that you weren't supposed to do, and then you you see these other people like I'm talking about Bob Sapp in Japan. He's got Bob Sapp there. You know, I had a talk with Lenny Hart about this, and and Lenny said it will never change, Don. It, it will never change. But you went over there and you created change, and that's phenomenal. And I and I think you're right. I think the world needs to dwell more into these aspects because you this isn't the first time that you were set up for failure and came out on top you know that's one thing i i truly love about the walk of ken shamrock you defied all odds and a lot of people don't really understand that and that's why we have you on the show today so we can kind of share with these people worldwide not just here in the united states but worldwide what you truly did invoke in this sport without ken shamrock and I'm not fluffing you, bro. This this sport would not be at the, the level that it is today if you didn't create the lion's den, if you didn't go over there for shooto boxing or anything else overseas. The world would not really look at the sport because, like you said, it was set up for the Gracies. 
And, you know, the crazy thing about it is with like Matt Hughes yesterday, they call him the Gracie killer. I, I don't really believe that. I think Ken Shamrock is truly the Gracie killer, if you want to put it into well, true aspects. I, I, I think that Sakuraba uh, has truly earned that, that, that thing. Me and Hoyce had our feud, uh, but I think Sakuraba really did go through the Gracies. I think, um, obviously, Hughes beat him at like an older age, So, and then yeah. they took the gi off him. Uh, he didn't have the gi on him either. So different, it's a different beast. Um, trust me on this. It's a different beast when they got a gi on because it eliminates your strength over them. And uh, that was a big deal. Um, you know, uh, the third time when I fought, fought Hoist, uh, he realized that. And, of course, then he decided to give me a low shot, which sent my nuts into my throat. <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, thank you. It's like uh, yeah, it's, it's a little hard to breathe. Uh, but – I appreciate that, and uh, there has been a lot, but I think as you look at sports, there's all these individuals that literally helped that sport get to a certain level. You know, obviously, it was Gracie and the Gracie family to bring this thing out. There was a feud with me and Gracie. It really pushed the UFC uh, into main, not in mainstream, but in occult nature. And then, of course, it was me taking over from there once I was able to, to kind of uh, beat Hoist up a little bit, and then I took off. Then there was guys like, uh, um, you know, Tito Ortiz, uh, Chuck Liddell, um, you know, Matt, not Matt Hughes, but um, yeah, Matt Hughes, but at a later time, but uh, Pat Militech. There's a lot of guys as this thing started to grow and get bigger and bigger that were the faces to be able to keep pushing the UFC where it's at today. But it takes those building blocks for the, for the UFC to be where it's at today. It's not somebody that goes, Hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to put a business plan together and we're going to make it big. It doesn't work like that because if you don't have the stars in the ring to do it, then it's just another business that fails. So there's a lot of pieces to it that, that make it what it is. And I think unfortunately that there's not enough history that has been done on the guys that literally built the UFC from the scratch, the Gracies, Bob Meyerowitz, Horian Gracie, even though you may not like these guys or, or, you know, want to be around them, the history is still history. You can't change it because you don't like somebody. Um, and that's to me where I think it's a shame that it's not, there's not enough of that that tells the truth about how UFC got to where it is today because the, the UFC now um, and even before when, when you know, the Fertitas owned it, um, you know, there was, there was still blocking the origins of the UFC. And to me, I think that when you want something to be strong and you want it to keep growing and have a great foundation, a strong foundation, you need to make sure that the foundation itself is also known. Yeah. Well, you know, can I drop a real quick before I toss it to Chris? I'm gonna drop a real quick fact here, and a lot of people really don't need even know this. When the Fertitas were first offered the UFC, their father said no, and the brothers went against their father and, and bought it anyway. Well, I knew Dana White at the time. He was a bag boy from Mayweather, you know, and he was really into boxing and just starting to learn jujitsu. And he pounded and pounded and pounded the pavement to get their first pay per view, and it was twice as hard to even get a venue. But there was a man that the world, for some reason, hates, and Donald Trump. But Donald Trump was the one that gave the USC their first pay-per-view. 
And, you know, it's kind of crazy to sit back and, and realize that the UFC wouldn't be where it's at today because the Fertitta's got a shell of a company. The prior owners took all the video. They took all the rights. They took everything. They just left a shell of a company. Dana, the Fertitta's, and everybody had to build it from the ground up. When it finally got to a UFC, you know, pay-per-view aspect, then the world started to really thoroughly understand and get to see tremendous warriors like you. What was it like for Ken Shamrock to finally get on worldwide television with the UFC? Yeah, it was, it was, it was exciting. I think uh, to go back a little bit on your, your uh, setup there is that in the beginning, it was pay-per-view uh, right out of the gate and yeah. their, their numbers weren't good. I mean, like their the, the ratio of what pay-per-view was getting as opposed to, you know, the Meyerwitz or SEG was getting yeah. was was lopsided. Yeah, uh, and was. they kind of dug themselves a hole because they kept wanting to build this because they knew it was special. But it was only getting to a point to where it was more like a cult thing. It wasn't mainstream, even though it was on pay-per-view. Nobody was following it. Nobody was putting in these press conferences. Um, nobody was putting them in newsletters. It was just this cult following. Even though this thing was popular and people were talking about it, it was still kind of underground. When when um, SCG uh, or UFC and and uh, and the Fertitas took it over, they were able to take it because it was a company that was had all this potential, but they didn't have the people behind it to market it properly. Um, they were out there, they were there, but they just didn't have the right channels. Well, when when the Fertitas took it over, these guys were locked into the boxing. And they had all the connections and they were in Vegas and they could put it mainstream. And so when they were able to get this product that was put into the put into this cult kind of figure and then put it out in front of mainstream using, obviously, I believe me um, when I came back to them to get it, you know, to the best damn sports show and all these other things, creating this hype. Um, the opportunities was massive because the product was so good it was different. The, the, the look was different. It just needed people to market it properly, get it in the right hands, put it in front of the right people. And uh, the reason why I'm saying that is because I, and I know it's a little bit early, but, but I believe I have the same thing now with Valor, with the bare knuckle fighting. It oh, looks yeah. different. It feels different. Even though this kind of fighting has been around a thousand years, it's bare knuckle. It's what, how people fight anyways. Um, it's starting to get to that position now where it's going mainstream. And I believe that, th the, you know, this thing is going to do what the UFC did. It's going to get in front of the right people because I'm going to put it there. We're going to get it into the right marketing. We're going to get it in the pay-per-view. We're going to get it in front of the news people, the people that need to see it. And the fans already love it. The product is good. So when you talk about the UFC, you talk about what the Fertitas were able to do to get it in Vegas and get it in front of the right people. The product was already good. They just needed to put it in front of the right people, and they did that. Yeah. You know, Dana pounded. I mean, he pounded. He knocked on doors for days. And, you know, I got to admire the man. You know, it's like even just recently he he reached out to me with my health conditions, and he got me set up with some tremendous doctors. And, you know, uh, the, everybody thinks he's the biggest asshole on the planet, but, you know, he may be, but uh, he still has a heart of gold sometimes, and it, it even shocks me. But. You know, sometimes people are there for the right moments and the right inclinations. Chris? Well, let me say this. I can say this uh, with, with experience that yeah. I, 
I I think I think and not everybody, but I think the majority of people mean well. They have the right intentions. But I think in when they get in front of adversaries or situations that causes them to not react in a normal situation, more protective or more defensive, that's when you start seeing things that you normally wouldn't see out of somebody that's a good person. Um, and so, and it happens to all of us. And so that's why with me, I, I've been, I've been, I fought a long time. Uh, I've been in front of the entertainment business a long time. A lot of good things I've done, some bad things that I've done, but that's people, man. And I think that no matter what we do in life, we're always going to find something that we like or we don't like. But just remember this, the things that you don't like or just because of a moment or a character or a personality that may just be in a bad spot at the moment. So I think that the only way you find out how a person is, is by a long-term relationship. And I think that's how you truly find out who somebody is and what kind of character they have. Yes, sir. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can I, I, I got to... Be, be honest with you because the first time I ever sort of was introduced to you yourself uh, was in is it 97 when you uh, were a special guest referee for Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin at Wrestlemania this is at a point where you know I, I was still quite young at the time and obviously UFC and mixed martial arts hasn't actually got over to the UK yet so you know what I mean you were this guy if I remember rightly with this big beefy muscly man and I was like you know I was really into my wrestling at the time and I'm like Who's Ken Shamrock? But you know, you you, were, you learned very quickly, and you probably were a referee in probably one of the greatest uh, WrestleMania moments between two Absolutely. of the probably biggest superstars ever to live. How did your transition from mixed martial arts to WWE happen? And just explain your whole sort of, if you can, your, your career in professional wrestling, and how did you feel? Yeah, I, I you know, obviously, I think, and most people probably don't know this but i started out pro wrestling and people always say i was an mma guy that went into pro wrestling it's the opposite i was a pro wrestler that went into mma and then back into pro wrestling and then back into mma again so um i started that out early on uh with uh, nelson royal uh in, in when i was actually in north carolina and so I had a good career there. But then, of course, my transition uh, into different places in Japan and then, of course, into the UFC. So uh, for me, uh, you know, you think about the end of my it wasn't really the end of my career. It was more of a financial situation with the UFC. Uh, my contract was coming up. Uh, Bob Meyer, which was the owner at the time. Hang on a second. Um, Bob Myers was the owner at the time. And, you know, obviously you remember the, the shows being closed down and, you know, states coming in and banning it. Uh, it was this legal fight every time we went to put a show on. So they were spending a lot of money on almost every single state we went to to try to make sure that we wouldn't get pushed out like we did in North Carolina and then ended up in Dothan, Alabama overnight. 
which cost them a lot of money to do that. So they were spending a lot of money. And I remember my contract had come up and I was supposed to get paid a certain amount of money. And Bob Meyer had said, hey, you know, we're just running through all this money and we don't know how long, how long we're going to stay afloat yeah. because of all the financial stuff that we have. And we just don't have the money. And I was like, I understand that. I said, but at the point in time, I couldn't, I couldn't take less because I was building this team. I was building this, this world that I had with MMA fighters. Um, and I just basically said, listen, I, I you know, I appreciate it, but I, 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 I've, I've got to do something else at least for now until you guys get things squared away and then hit me back and I'll come back. It was a great conversation. No problem. Bob understood. Um, and so we went our separate ways and, and that's when I started putting my feelers out to new Japan and, and, um, Oh, WCW, um, WWF. But the minute I reached out to WWF, Vince called me personally, called me right back and said, when can we get you up here? And I remember he brought me up and he brought me up and then we sat down and talked and he basically sold me on, Hey, we want to do something special with you. We think that, you know, you're a great talent. They, nobody knew I'd wrestled either. I mean, I went under Vince Torelli, so nobody knew that I had wrestled. And I forgot I even wrestled because I never mentioned it. I just got there and I was like, hey, yeah. And so then uh, the there was, a, I believe it was Monday, Monday show or whatever show was on. And they had me sitting in the front row and I did this little thing with the nation and Farouk where they first saw me sitting in the, re in the wrestling audience and I got in his face. And of course, that was my introduction um, to, to coming into the WWF. But I can honestly say, man, when I got connected with WWF, there was other people I was talking to, a lot of opportunities. Um, they were they were very easy to work with. I mean, basically sat down. I met getting a, a Barry. Um, um, uh, I forget his name, uh, but he was one of the agents. Um, and so I remember uh, when we sat down and talked, it was really easy. We worked through what we needed, what we wanted. And uh, that Monday I went and did, I think it was Monday where I had the, the thing with Farouk. And then once we did that and then I started getting in the ring and working, it was like, it was like I, I belong there again. Remember I told you went in and fought and I started doing it and I just felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. It was the same reaction that I had because I was, remember I was already, I already won. I already, I already had all these things and it was like, okay, I can't keep spinning my wheels here with what's going on with UFC and all these other things. So when I went there and I, I got in and started wrestling cause I had already done it early on and I heard that crowd pop and I was like, this is what I want to do. It's like that same emotion came over. This is it. And so I just locked into it and I start, I remember started doing it. I was on every pay-per-view, every in your house. I mean, I started out as the top, one of the top five guys right out of the gate. I was on every single house show, every single pay-per-view and I just took off running and it just felt so right. It, 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 obviously, I, I feel as well, though, it was a very missed opportunity at the time when you were at your, your, heightest, your highest in WWF that you never got hold of you know, the world championship belt. You never were given that title. And I always look back and, you know, as a young lad, when I was really into wrestling, obviously I moved on to mixed martial arts, you know, as I got older. Um, I don't really watch it as much now, but my cousin um, Stuart's massive on it and he has his own podcast and does loads on it. But um, I remember, you know, that you were, you know, fantastic and 
that crazy sort of world the most dangerous man persona you've got you know you're coming up near the ropes and you'd bang your hands against your face and you, you know what i mean i remember all that but you were never given the the, the the world championship belt you weren't given the heavyweight title and i feel like wwf at the time and you were so high and you were so popular you were just they just never give it to you and i feel like that's a shame for them more than it is for you because you were you were warranted and you you, you know i mean for us as fans as well we wanted that to happen for you yeah, it was a great opportunity, and 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 I I remember there was probably not so long ago that I felt the same way. I felt like, man, they just didn't use me right, and I felt like there was so much opportunity. I mean, what they did with Goldberg, they should have done with me in the WWF. I mean, like they painted him as this 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 monster MMA guy, right, with the same wrestling shoes and the gloves and the tights, and you know, here it was you had the the real one. And they didn't use it. And, of course, then they developed Stone Cold Steve Austin by using me to referee the match to kind of put that over uh, as a shoot and then pushed Stone Cold as this thing like Goldberg that were just badass, kick-ass, take-no-names, which is you had the real one. Uh, and so for me, I felt the same way for a long time. But then as, as you get older, you start getting to really look at things as they are and in reality – there was a lot of talent. I mean, like yeah. the roster was loaded and anybody could have done anything at the time uh, and played any character at the time. And I just look at it and go, man, I was blessed, truly blessed to be able to do the things that I did, have the success that I had. You know, I captured everything but the heavyweight title. But in, in, and like I said, in, in their defense, I believe there was a lot of guys that were more qualified as far as experience uh, than I, in fact, is everybody on that, in that ring had spent more time in pro wrestling than me. And so, and they were all very good. So I, I can see, you know, their thought process. I can see their, their design, uh, of being able to put somebody that, you know, for a fact will be able to handle the storylines, be able to handle all the things that come with being a superstar. Um, so because they've been in it so long. So for me, I look at it and go, yeah, they could have done other things differently and could have used me differently. Yes, I could have had rivalries with Stone Cold, Bret Hart. The, the list just goes on. Uh, Steve Blackman. I mean, just there's so many things that, yes, they could have happened. But I look at it at the things that did happen and the storylines that did take place and the matches that I were was a part of. Uh, in fact, is WrestleMania 13, Stone Cold and Bret Hart, the greatest match I've ever seen. I was in it. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, so for me, yeah, no, no regrets, uh, no finger pointing. I think that, you know, I had a great career. I enjoyed every minute of it. I appreciated the, all the opportunities. And that, you know, if it would have been done and there was people that, I, that weren't as qualified and that got the push, yeah. But that wasn't the case. I think that everybody on that roster was very talented and that anybody could have taken any one of those places. You were the in the most... Go ahead, Chris. Just I was just going to say the only thing I disagree with you on is you said you had the greatest career. I, I, I still think you have a great career. I don't, I don't think your career is far from being over. You know, my man, I, I've, I've been in this sport for 37 years. You've been on my show a couple times, and I've met you in life a few times. And I tell you what, you're one of the largest in life characters. 
and real people in this sport that I've always looked up to. You know, you, you look at Justin McCauley, Paul Verlin's my brother who died. You look at Todd Medina. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. You know, all these people had opportunities, but you created greatness. You know, you rose above. You know how they say that the shit falls to the bottom and the cream rises to the top. Well, when I look at Ken Shamrock, that's how I look at your career. Your career is far from being over, brother. You know, you will always capture the heart of people around the world because you're real. You've never sugarcoated shit. You always said it how it was. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about you the most is a lot of people want to sit and brag about themselves or take a claim for things they didn't do. But you've always been 100% genuine. You've always been real and you're a straight shooter. You know, you, my grandfather used to say, don't ask a real man something unless you want him to get up in your feelings. And that's, that's how it is with Ken Shamrock, because if you ask you something, you're a straight shooter. You're going to get somebody all up in their feelings, but you're black and white. You tell the truth. And that's what the sport respects and appreciates about Ken Shamrock. There's no fluff. It's all real. And, you know, to see a man come from the life that you had to create greatness, you never made excuses. You continued and, and you paved a path for many. And starting from the wrestling aspect to the lion's den, to me, you're one of the greatest and most successful in the sport to date. And uh, I don't say that about many, but brother, you, you're just getting started, man. You, you really are. I, I, I think the second half of your career is just going to go even better. You know, and I, I love Valor. I, I, I remember the first show that you put on and I tell you what, I can't wait till things grow for you because uh, the, the ring was monumental the way you did it. I mean, you, it, you just put that little bit of expertise, that oomph in it where everybody's, else is not even trying to to come in at the same level that you are. And that just speaks profoundly about what you do and how much you care about the sport and these athletes, brother. It's, it's monumental. And I can't wait until Valor comes back and the world gets to see what a true aspect of the sport brings. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's, you're right. There's, it's a lot of things that we protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Almost sometimes feel like we're bragging about, but it's the truth, right? I mean, like, I try not to, but sometimes when you're telling the truth, it's it's either bragging or you're hurting somebody's feelings. Yeah. And uh, it's not on purpose, Right. So that's kind of with me too, is a lot of things that oh, throughout my career where I've rubbed people wrong, owners of, of fight companies, owners of professional wrestling companies, um, because I'm, because I just, I don't think about what I'm saying. I'm just saying what I'm thinking and saying what I feel is the, the truth. And a lot of times it comes out because it's sometimes so honest, it comes out wrong. And so those are things I've had to work on uh, to be able to 
be able to still tell the truth without actually getting up in people's face doing it. And uh, because I'm not a fighter anymore, right? So I can't use that as an excuse anymore. It's like, yeah, I'm not a businessman or I'm not this or not that. I'm a fighter. Um, I'm still a fighter and always will be, but now I have to be able to understand how to deal with people. And so it, it, it's, it's helping me to be able to do that, to be able to still tell the truth and be honest, but without getting up in people's face or hurting people's feelings. I try not to. Sometimes it, it still happens because truth hurts a lot most of the time, but yeah. it's truth that will help you feel better uh, all the time. And so for me, that's kind of what I want to live by. Just like with Valor, you know, I came up with Valor and the design of Valor because of what I experienced with the Octagon. I felt like when I saw the Octagon, um, the show had arrived. Like this was special. And even though we didn't know what was going to happen in it, it was like the show already started because of the Octagon. It was so captivating. And so the memory I had about seeing that was what I wanted to almost um, copy with what you know the Gracies had done uh, with that cage because when it was sitting there and people started loading into the arena they were like dude they're gonna fight in that it was captivating so I wanted to do that with the bout circle I wanted it to be something where people look at it and go oh this should be fun like how are they gonna stay in there it's like well men mentally when you think about it me as a fighter going what are you talking about staying in there they're fighters they're not going anywhere so it's it, i don't think the same way they do so when someone asks me dude how are you going to keep them in there i'm like what like oh that's a legitimate question though right like i wouldn't think of that as a fighter i would think i'm on there and i'm fighting i'm not going anywhere and that was the reality of the fight itself when valor first came out was like because i didn't think like they were thinking um because otherwise i probably would have put some boundaries up there and go oh that's true man they what happens but i didn't think that way i thought like a fighter and so we did our first show and i had to worry about it because i know what fighters do they're not backing up they're fighting forward and if they don't got something to back up into as a fighter you fight harder to not go backwards because you don't want to end up out of bounds because you're at a disadvantage. So everything that you land while you're out of bounds doesn't count. So if somebody's punching you and you're out of bounds, everything they throw counts, but everything you throw on the out of bounds doesn't count. <laughs> so as a fighter, you're going, I don't want to be there. So you circle more use your footwork more and you use your hands a lot more. So it turned out special because I thought of it as a fighter, but also to visually for fans. When you look at the bout circle, the one thing that I wanted to do was make it more fan friendly. So when people bought tickets to be on the floor, they literally got the best tickets in the house because they're paying for them. So when we sat on the floor and we did our first event, it was like they could feel the punches. They could feel the sweat coming off their bodies because there was nothing in their way of watching these fights. It was explosive. And it felt like you were right there in the pit with them. And even the people in the audience, when you're sitting up that high and you've got to look down and you're looking through ropes or a cage, you still feel separated. But when you take that away, even in the stands, you're like, dude, there's nothing in my way. I see these people. And so it just became more fan friendly. It made the fights faster and more exciting. And so I think a lot of the experience that I had, I was able to put into Valor. And uh, we're doing really everything at this point 
to be able to put a better show on. I think within the next probably four to five weeks, we're going to make an announcement uh, of where we're going to be fighting. So we, I think we already have the venue. We have the state. We know where we want to be. Um, we're working out the details as we speak. I was just on a call today uh, before you guys. Um, so we're locking all that down and we'll make that announcement. But I believe, and I've been a part of fighting a long time, been a part of a lot of new things in fighting. And I believe that this, that we see right now, which is the bare knuckle fighting, which you're already seeing an organization do, and they're doing tremendous numbers. And I believe our product is much better than what you're seeing out there right now. That's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, and when we put the show on, I believe that this is going to be the next UFC. I agree with you. And I'll tell you what, I hung my cameras up after 37 years in 2021. When you bring that next show out, I'll bring my cameras out of retirement to come shoot your show, brother. With yeah, it's going to be out, it. It's going to be it, man. I'm telling you. Oh, it's going to yeah. be on fire. Yes, sir. Chris? Ken, I'm, I'm just going to obviously, uh, finish it here with you now, um, but I want to say it's uh, been a great honour to have you on. A guy that obviously I, I saw as a pro wrestler first before I saw the, the mixed martial arts side of you, and it's been such an honour. Um, I'd love to get you back again because there's so much more that we can go into and, and, and talk more. There's so much more. Uh, honest to God, for from for my heart and Don's, um, I really, really appreciate you giving me your time on Big Fight Weekly. I appreciate you guys for having me on again. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate you guys and very much enjoy your show. Thank you very yeah. much. We love you, bro. And uh, I'll be getting with you in, in, a, in a on the other thing with Valor, and then I will bring you back on here in the states, and we'll we'll rock it out, and I'll get a correlation with Ted. Thank you, Ted, so much for making today happen. Yeah. But uh, we'll we'll get together, brother, and we'll I'll bring my cameras out of retirement, and we'll come shoot your show for you. Sounds now, Ken, good, my friend. Truly an honor, man. God bless Thank you, my you brother. Ken. Appreciate you guys. Take it easy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I love that. Um, on um again thank you for you know the opportunity to get ken on here um absolutely brilliant loved it so such a mindset of knowledge and history it blows my mind i feel like we probably could have gone on for the, a few more hours oh we could have quite easily <laughs> we could have. but uh, um, you got to get to work in the morning and uh you know most people don't realize that you're you're six hours ahead of us ken's two hours behind me and on that note, you know, I want to thank the people of the United Kingdom and the people worldwide. You know, my buddy right here is uh, a tremendous, tremendous young lad. And I, I believe in him. That's why I'm doing these shows with him. But I also have my own show. But, uh, you know, I think if we all come together, we can create a better world. We can create a better place. And with that being said, if you want to give the fighter's voice, the original fighter's voice of Don McGuire a follow, you Do can. It. But Do it. You know, you don't really need to because you're going to catch me here either way. But if you want to, that's fine. But uh, Chris, man, tremendous opportunity. Look forward to the next, brother. Next week. I don't know what day it is yet, but me and Don will correlate something. And Big Fight Week will be back next week. Could be an interview or we could be breaking down a card. Who knows? We'll see you all next week. And thank you very much for the people who made comments and who watched us today. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Don. Thank you, Ken Shamrock. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're welcome, mate. Bye bye. Take it easy. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.